You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We now take our Bibles and read together two passages from God's Holy Word. The first is Luke chapter 16, the verses 1 through 15. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. Uh, So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome you into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly. Make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Now we turn to the Second Corinthians 9, the verses 6 through 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that in things, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous in every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Brothers and sisters, I proclaim to you this morning the word of our God as we could read it from Luke and 2 Corinthians. I ask your attention in particular for that which the Lord has put in his word in Luke chapter 16, verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior's words in the text I just read strike us as odd. Is it really so that we're to somehow make friends with our worldly wealth? Am I to spend in order to buy your friendship? Would you have your children do that? In some way it strikes us as, don't know, odd. That surely can't be Jesus' instruction. Then we read a bit further in the text and there's reference to being welcomed into eternal dwellings. Eternal dwellings, and we think of heaven and welcome. Is there really a welcoming committee? And what's this welcoming committee in heaven then got to do with the way I'm spending my money here? What are we to make of all of this? And questions abound, too, about the parable that precedes the text. Will Jesus, in fact, commend a dishonest steward? this fraud pay off? Is that how we're meant to use our money to buy friends, fraudulently? The passage gives us so many questions. Yet, my brothers, my sisters, the Lord would give us so many answers. For the fact of the matter is that he's given to us in our corner of his big world, in the day and age in which we live, he's given to us so much in terms of wealth. And that raises the question, how am I to use the wealth he's given? What's it for? 
and the Lord's answer is, use your wealth to gain for yourself friends for eternity. That's his answer. I summarize the sermon this morning with this theme. The Lord instructs us to use our wealth today to make friends who welcome us in the new Jerusalem. In unpacking that theme, I ask your attention for two points. Why we're to make friends for eternity? And then how we're to make friends for eternity? The text itself, verse 9, is Jesus' conclusion to the parable he's just told. The parable is that of a rich man who hired a general manager to look after his property for him. But through this means or that, it came to the attention of the property owner that the general manager was not doing his job the way he ought. So the general manager was called on the carpet and told, you're fired, you haven't got a job here anymore. The general manager asks himself, what am I going to do now? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. What are my options for down the track? The light comes on and he says, I know what I'm going to do. Then he calls in his master's debtors and he asks, how much owe my master? Certain amount, right? Just cut that in half and that'll do. And the second again, how much you owe? Well, I'll take 80% of that. That'll do. Why? Because, says this general manager, if I can become friends with my master's debtors, when I'm on the street, they will accept me into their home. And I can eat from their table. The intriguing thing is that Jesus ends the parable with the words of verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because it acted shrewdly. That is, the words that Jesus puts into the parable. And we understand that there's something then in the manager's action that Jesus applauds. We have a problem here. The general manager is guilty of fraud. And Jesus applauds that? Yes. Well, no. He doesn't applaud the fraud, but he applauds the fact that this general manager is thinking ahead. He's preparing today for the eventualities of his tomorrows. And that receives Jesus' commendation. Yes, this particular general manager acts according to the pattern of this world. That's what Jesus also says in the second part of verse 8. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind. Yes, he's dealing with his own kind. It's a dog-eat-dog sort of world out there. And i got to get you before you get me. 
It's not the way the Lord wants it. That point's granted. But the fact that there is a certain initiative, that there's a looking ahead, that there's preparing today for tomorrow, that part's good. And that's what Jesus commends. And that's what prompts Jesus to say to his disciples, now I tell you, Peter, and James, and Andrew, and the rest, you too. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. And it's an instruction, understand. That's not limited to Peter and James and Andrew and the rest, but it's an instruction to you and to me. Why does Jesus give this kind of instruction? What prompts this parable with its conclusion? We need to note, brothers and sisters, that our Lord Jesus Christ is currently en route from Galilee to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem to the cross and then to heaven. I say that because of what I read in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, as the time approached him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's in Galilee. Now he has to go to Jerusalem, to heaven. And the material of the past, of the, the chapters that follow relate what's happening as Jesus travels to Jerusalem, including chapter 16. But the thing is now that Jesus is not traveling alone from Galilee to Jerusalem to heaven. He has with him a number of travel companions, specifically his disciples. It's what Jesus says to them in in chapter 9, verse 22, verse 21. There's a reference to having to come after Jesus so that the disciples too have to lay down their lives, that in turn, when the Son of Man, verse 26, comes back, those who follow him can also be received into glory. You see, the disciples are traveling with Jesus. Okay. Now, the question is, How are the disciples to enter into the new Jerusalem? How shall they receive glory? And Jesus answers that question in the process of his conversations with his disciples, including chapter 15, the parable of the two lost sons, the one being, as we call, the prodigal son. This particular son, you know that parable, had demanded his father's, well, inheritance, and then took off and spent it. But there came the day he came to his senses and came back home. And then in that parable, the father dashes out to meet his son, embraces him warmly even before there is any talk of where have you been and how do you feel now and are you repentant, but embraces the son and organizes a feast. We understand the implication. There is with God much forgiveness. 
Well now, how shall the disciples en route as they are to the new Jerusalem? How shall they enter that new Jerusalem? Shall they sit as bumps on logs and wait for grace to fall into their lap? Yes, for salvation is by grace. But no, gratitude for grace looks like something. And that's Jesus' point now in the next parable he tells, that of chapter 16. And that's the point then, too, of the conclusion of that parable as caught in our text. Gratitude looks like something. Like what? Well, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. To gain friends for yourselves, Jesus says, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth. We understand that phrase. Worldly wealth is a reference to money, possessions, material goods. Jesus' instruction, use that to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, when worldly wealth is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. When the money is gone, and we hear in that phrase a reference to when the money's all used up. In point of fact, the Greek here does not talk with the money being gone, but the money Failing. And money indeed fails when it's gone. Yes. But there is an other point in time when money fails. And that is, when you die, your money cannot help you. It's what we sang from Psalm 49. Think of verse 10. All men die, but leave their wealth to others. They cannot take their wealth with them when they appear before the judgment seat of God. That's when your money fails. You can leave so much behind, but you have to leave it behind. but appear before the judgment seat of God, well, all of us must do that. And then, who will help us then? Money can't. Who can? Or must one at that point presume on the grace of God? Think again the parable of the prodigal son. The Father receives him openly. Is that what's to happen when we die? We enter the courts of God and the Lord embraces us eagerly. Are we to presume on the goodness of God? Are we to say, we've been to church all these years. We've done the right thing by our neighbors and our friends and our family members and so God should receive us. 
You see, there's the place of the parable of the shrewd manager. This particular manager's financial possibilities failed him. Failed because he misused his position and so his boss fired him. So what does this general manager do? He makes preparations for his tomorrows. And he makes preparations according to the standards of his world, his age. The sons of this age act in a certain way. And this manager did too. Dishonestly. That was wrong. But he was shrewd. He was wise in as much as he prepared today for tomorrow. He thought ahead. And that received the commendation of the man who told the parable, our chief prophet and teacher. Says Jesus to his disciples and so to his people of all ages, you too need to be astute, as astute, as shrewd as the sons of this age. Says Jesus, you too may not take tomorrow's security for granted today. Today too you need to prepare, you need to think ahead for tomorrow's eventualities. Specifically, your goods will fail you when you die. Are you ready? Have you thought ahead to what you shall say to meet the Lord? Let me, congregation, say the same thing now with totally different words. It's well known to you that you need faith to be saved. No one shall enter the kingdom of God without faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified for you. But here's the question. What does faith look like? Is faith something you put on the shelf and say, right, I got faith and I can take this faith with me to heaven and show it to God. I got faith. He will save me. We recognize that's not the case. James says very pointedly, faith without works is dead. Faith looks like something. And now Jesus says in our parable, that the look of faith is particular action in relation to your money. Nothing new there. This too is what James says. The same James who says that faith that works is dead, says a chapter earlier that religion, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, look after orphans and widows in their distress. So we come to our second point. How to make friends for eternity. The general manager of the parable used his imagination 
to find ways and means to be ready for tomorrow. He called in his master's debtors, changed the size of their debt, and that was that. He's ready for tomorrow. Fraud. Wrong. But prepared. Now Jesus' disciples. And you and me. The money we have now will not help us when we meet God. So what does Jesus tell us to do? He tells us to use that money that we now have in such a way that when we meet God, we have friends who vouch for us. How do we have to use money to achieve that goal? Jesus does not tell us in the parable. Why not? He wants us to be shrewd to use our imagination. As the general manager in the parable used his imagination to seek today answers for tomorrow's needs, so says Jesus, you, use your own heads. Think things through. Consider the possibilities of the age of the world, the times in which you live. What can you do to use today your money so that tomorrow it reaps benefits for you? No answers. And yet, congregation, there are answers in Jesus' further teaching. For directly after this parable of the shrewd manager and Jesus' commentary upon it, He gives another parable, that of the rich man and Lazarus. And what's that parable about? A rich man who used his wealth for this life alone. There was a rich man, says Luke 16, 19, who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked the sores. Lazarus stayed there because? Because the rich man did not help him out. Rich man died. Lazarus died. Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abram's bosom, and the rich man ended up in hell. Says Abram, says, says Jesus to, in, in this parable, Abram replies to the rich man's son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, well Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here, and you? You're not! You receive the reward of your wealth in the life on earth. And because of the way you use it and didn't use it, you have no friends who will vouch for you in the new Jerusalem. And so the rich man ends up in hell. We understand the implication. What this man ought to have done is shared. Used his abundance to help poor Lazarus at his gate. That way, the rich man would have friends 
for eternity. Jesus follows with more instruction. I think of chapter 18, where a certain ruler said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18. And Jesus says, you know the law, obey the law. And the rich, and the, the rich man says, I've done all that since I was a boy. Verse 21. And then Jesus says, you lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. We understand the instruction again. This rich man is to use the possibilities of his worldly wealth for the benefit of others so that he may have treasure in heaven. And what's the treasure in heaven? That there shall be those in heaven who will vouch for him when he gets there. And I can go on. But you catch the point. Is there indication in Scripture as to how we ought to use our worldly wealth in order to gain friends for ourselves for eternity? Sure there is. But the concrete application of how you do it is for each of us to answer in the specific circumstances in which we are, including the particular needs of our times, the possibilities of our culture. And we understand, too, congregation, that Jesus' instruction here is not surprising. I mentioned already Psalm 49, and the fact that when one dies, one cannot take his wealth along. But what, according to Old Testament instruction, characterizes the godly? Psalm 112. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That is a godly man. He doesn't cling to what he has, but he gives it freely away. Is that surprising? Not at all. That's the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read together a portion from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But that chapter is built on chapter 8 where the apostle describes Jesus as leaving behind the glory of heaven, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, leaving aside the glory of heaven, coming to earth, and here becoming poor. He gave away his abundance. What for? For the redemption of the unworthy. That you, says Paul to the Corinthians, and so to you and to me, that you through his poverty might become rich. And Paul builds on that pattern of the Lord's behavior, his instruction of 2 Corinthians 9. And what's that instruction? Why we read it. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Every farmer, every gardener knows that. You put two bean seeds in the ground 
and you will not produce sufficient to fill your freezer. Easy. And so it is true, so it is here. Also in terms of giving, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Generously. In what way? Why giving bears fruit. You say, how does it bear fruit? What's this got to do with buying friends for eternity? Well, congregation, listen to the apostle in his continued instruction in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 12. This service, says the apostle, that you perform, giving to others, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, the needs of those to whom you give, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Point. Those to whom you give have their needs supplied. Great. But it also results in so much gratitude on their part. And they go to God with their thanks, with their praise, and they thank Him for what He has given to them through Why, through the Corinthians' liberality, through your liberality. The apostle continues, verse 13, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity and sharing with them and with everyone else. You catch the point. Generosity reflects gratitude, and others thank God for the gratitude they experience in your giving. And the apostle continues, verse 14, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Do you catch the point? They mention you in prayer to God. And they remind God that with you are the fruits of faith. So you belong in the new Jerusalem. They, those who received your generosity, they vouch for you. That congregation is again Jesus' pattern. He gave up all to save the unworthy. And what do the unworthy do? Oh, yes, they receive life, forgiveness, heaven. But what do the unworthy do? Why, they praise the Lord in this life and in heaven. So that in heaven there are songs of praise ascribed to Jesus Christ. His goodness is our salvation. So his reputation is talked up in heaven through the songs of the angels and the songs of the saints. Can I say it this way? The saints 
those who've received Christ's generosity vouch for Jesus. Vouch that he's given so much for their salvation. And this now is Jesus' instruction to his disciples. You go and do the same. Give of the worldly wealth you have. Give so that others, when they come to heaven, will vouch for you that, yes, with you are the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of faith. If that then's the instruction of the text, the rest of Jesus' words that follow the text make sense too. For what's Jesus say in Luke 16:10? Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much, says our translation. And the Greek talks not so much not so much about trusted with very little as with whoever can be trusted with the least. And the least is a reference to money. It passes away. It will not endure forever. But if you can be trusted with that which passes away, you can also be trusted with very much, with that which lasts forever, the gospel of redemption in Christ. Again, whoever is dishonest with little, with the least, with earthly money, will also be dishonest with much. If you can't treat your earthly wealth well in a God-centered way, will you in fact, can you in fact use the gospel well in a God-centered way? So Jesus continues, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, money, who will trust you with true riches? Heaven, life eternal. The care of so many cities. Recall the other parable of the Lord? Becoming kings with him. If you can't handle, if you can't master, if you can't rule over your little Money, maybe a lot, but it's the least, it's going to perish. Why in the world would Christ entrust you, entrust to you a position of being king with him in eternity? Again, verse 12. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, and is your money not God's property? Who will give you property of your own? And you catch the point. No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't have both. Either money is your God, or God is your God. And if God is your God, your money, your worldly wealth, your possessions is only tools with which to serve God. Tools to be used today with a view to being ready for tomorrow. 
gaining friends for yourself who vouch for you in the new Jerusalem. Have you, my brothers, my sisters, understood Jesus' parable? The Pharisees, says verse 14, did. They loved money. They heard all this. And they were sneering at Jesus. Sneered at him. This wasn't instruction they wanted. Well, what about you? Think about it, my brothers, my sisters. Are you as shrewd with respect to eternity and meeting your God as you are for meeting tomorrow's eventualities in this life? Or is it so that you're using the worldly wealth God has given for your own comfort today? That is the question of the parable. And it's this that Jesus drives home With the words of verse 8, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. So there's the question. How shrewd are you? Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.